So Judges chapter 10, verse 10 to 16, and hopefully you have an outline in front of you. You should. There should be enough copies. If you haven't, there's an outline there. And it should say on top there, true repentance. That's what we are looking at this evening. Now, every day, he felt something missing. He grew up in a rich family. But it's not just the money he had. He also inherited a rich religious heritage. You see, from a young age, he had been taught the Torah. Now, we are not entirely sure, but it's likely that he had even memorized all the first five books of the Bible. He had committed those to memory. And yet this young man, who had what others can only dream about, felt an empty hole in his life. He had gotten to the top and he had found that there is nothing there. He longed for true fulfillment. He wanted what the ancients call eternal life. But where would he find this eternal life? Well, history tells us that the man came running to Jesus. And he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And history records that after a few exchanges, Jesus looked him in the eye and with love and said to him, Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to those who are poor and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. And as you, some of you may remember, the man was devastated. He couldn't believe it. Give away my money? Everything? And without saying a word to Jesus, the man walked away very sad. It's one of the saddest passages in the Bible. And you find it at Mark 10, verse 21 to verse 22. You see, within each one of us, there is a longing to live in a relationship with God. We know that nothing else can bring fulfillment apart from God. We know it is deep in our hearts. How do we know? Because we have tried everything. We have tried sex. We have tried money. We have tried relationships. We have tried religion. We have tried power. We have tried politics. We have tried many countless things. And none of it satisfies us. We know deep in our heart that there is a God-shaped hole in our hearts. We know that only a life with God can truly satisfy us. This young man knew it in the scriptures. And yet when that rich man came to Jesus to ask how he can have life with God and find this true fulfillment, he went away sad. He got the answer, but he failed to repent. You see, putting God first above everything else generates resistance within us. We do not want to fully surrender our life to God. It challenges our pride. Let us be honest, friends. We understand how that man felt. Why? Because that man is us. We are that man. 
Oh, friends, how many times have you heard a sermon about sin and gone right back to doing it? How many times has God told you to surrender everything to Him and you have held back? But as we see in the life of that man, refusing to surrender to God has consequences. The Bible tells us that he did what? He went away, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Friends, a life that does not repent cannot enjoy God and cannot enjoy life. Period. Therefore, all of us need to be continuously reminded of what true repentance is. What does it mean to put God first and everything else last? What does it mean to turn away from sin, the sin we looked at this morning, the sin that offends God, the sin that hardens the heart, the sin that eventually destroys us? What does it mean to turn away from that? Well, this is something that God teaches us through our judges. You see, the good news of Judges is that it not only shows the sinfulness of sin, which we looked at this morning, but also the repentance that God wants. The repentance that God wants from each one of us. What is true repentance? Well, this question is answered for us in Judges 10, verse 10 to 16. And there are just three things that I want to draw out there in front of you in your outline. Very important points here. The first point I want to draw out from this passage is what repentance is not. Because that's what this passage does. What repentance is not. We, saw, we need to know what repentance isn't. We saw in the morning that the people of Israel have done what? They have sinned against God. And the sin has now led them to be oppressed by the Ammonites. So you know what Israel does? It thinks to itself, let's go to church on Sunday. Maybe God will be impressed and help us. Look at verse 10. That is 10 verse 10. It says this. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the bells. But notice God's response. God is not impressed. Look at verse 11 to verse 14. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? One, and from the Amorites, two, and from the Ammonites, three, and from the Philistines, four, the Sidonians, five, and also the Amalekites, six, and the Maronites, seven, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of your hand, and yet you have forsaken me and saved other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. God has rejected Israel's cry for help because Israel has not repented. It has received a sevenfold salvation from the Lord and wandered back into a sevenfold idolatry we looked at this morning. They have not repented. And there are two things here I just want to show you why their repentance before God is not genuine. These are sub-points under the first point. And in your outline it says repentance, first of all, is not mere regret for our predicament. Repentance is not mere regret for your situation. 
You see, Israel has found themselves in a national bellmash, a national prison. And what do they do? They do what they do best. They break out in tears. Look at verse 10 again. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. <laughs> if you've been with us in Judges, you know that if there was a contest for crying, Israel would win it. I mean, these guys love to cry whenever they are in a difficult situation. They are good at it. They cried at Boshim. What does Boshim mean? The place of tears. Judges 2 verse 4. We met them there crying there when the angel of the Lord appeared. They cried under Cushion, Ristahim. They cried under Eglon. They cried under Jebin and Sisera. The list goes on. They are crying all the time when bad things happen. They always cry when they don't get their way. But friends, tears of regret are not repentance. Parents with children know this very well. Even teachers among you know this very well. You tell a child to do something and she starts crying, crying for a while. But she hasn't changed. Tomorrow she will just do the same thing again. And that is often, we often feel sorry. We often cry, isn't it? We, we often tell God we are sorry for our sins. And we can even break out in tears about it. But we are only telling him that, not because we are sorry for our sins. Because we, we want God to give us a job, perhaps. We want God to give us friends. We want God to restore some happiness in our lives. We are not crying to God because we are offended at offending him. We are, we are broken for offending him. We are not crying on God's behalf. We are crying on our behalf. And if there was a way that God can give us those things we want, friends, if God can still let you into heaven while you're holding on to your sin, you'd still do it. Even if you knew that sin offended God. Many of us are like that. It's what we want rather than how it looks from God's vantage point. We do that because we don't really care for God. Friends, repentance is not mere regret for our situation, no matter how emotional we get. Judas regretted his actions, but he did not repent. Secondly, you see there in this passage that repentance is not mere knowledge of our sinful condition. It is not merely knowing that I have offended God. Look at this turn again, what the Israelites have done. Look how they've cried out to God. They're saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the bears. On the surface, these words of Israel look impressive. They seem to have the right theology. They seem to be saying big words. We have sinned against you. Oh, we have forsaken our God. Good theology. But God says it's all just talk. Israel is like the newsreaders. You know, the newsreaders, they can describe something on TV about a situation and you think they've been there. But they haven't been there. They're just reporting what they've read. They are not intimate. Sometimes newsreaders just read something without any interest in it whatsoever. They have no 
personal experience. They're not broken over the situation. And many of us are like that. We have good Bible knowledge. Some of you here know the Bible enough to save Saudi Arabia. Because you attend church and have read the Bible. And yet you are not genuinely repentant. The rich man knew the Bible. He knew all the Ten Commandments. Satan is a theological expert. Better than all of us here combined. And yet he is not repentant. At all. Oh, Satan can also break out in a good tear if he wants to. But he's not repentant. So what is repentance? Well, we've seen the first point, what repentance is not. Let's look at what repentance is. What repentance is. That's our second point. You see here that now that God has rejected their false repentance, they now genuinely turn to God. Look at verse 15 again. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us from this day. The sin says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And it seems the Lord here accepts their repentance. Because verse 16 continues. And he, that is the Lord, became impatient impatient over the misery of Israel. And we see God raise up Jephthah next week. As God now begins to save them, to, to, to save them from their predicament. Because they have genuinely repented. And there are, three things, there are two things I just want to point out there. In that verse 15 to verse 16, that tell us what true repentance is. First, true repentance is surrendering yourself at the mercy of God. It is surrendering yourself at the mercy of God. Look at verse 15 again there. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Notice first that Israel is not even trying to list the sins before God because there are too many. They know they have no leg to stand on. They just say, we have sinned, Lord. We we have sinned. We are a mess. We are placing ourselves at your mercy. They're just saying, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Friends, You have not repented until you come before God and tell him, Lord, I fully surrender my life to you. I am a sinner. Do to me as you like. Do to me as you like. It is April 1989. Where are we? We are in Vienna, Austria. You see, the last empress of Austria, Empress Zita, is being led to rest. The ornate black imperial casket is now being rolled past the old palaces and elegant temples of central Vienna. It is being taken to the imperial vault for burial. And there, under the Capuchin Church, the last empress of of Austria, Zita, is going to be led to rest among the richly decorated caskets of the Habsburgs' empire. Thousands have lined the streets of Vienna. 
And as the procession arrives at this Capuchin church, they find the door is locked on purpose. Thousands of mourners, they come to this little church and they find the door is locked. They won't be let in for burial. The poor bearers knock on the door. And the priest behind the church, behind the church door answers, Who is there? The poor bearers read out all Zita's titles. It is Zita, Queen of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Slovenia, Queen of Jerusalem, the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. And the titles are many, they just roar on and on. And the priest answers back, I do not know her. The poor bearers knock again. Again, the priest answers, Who goes there? The poor bearers respond now, It is Zita, Empress of Austria and Queen of Hungary. The priest answers, I do not know her. Again, the poor bearers knock. Again, the priest answers, Who goes there? The poor bearers now answer, Zita, a sinning motto. And the priest says, Come in. The door of the church now opens wide. Zita's burial is a picture of repentance. When we come before God, we must lay aside all our titles, lay aside all our possessions, lay aside everything we cling to. We must place ourselves entirely at his mercy as a sinning mortal, as a sinner. And when God asks, who goes there? We must answer, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. True repentance is total surrender before God's mercy. The second thing we see in this passage about true repentance is that true repentance isn't just total surrender to God's mercy, it's breaking free from sin. Israel is not just turning to the one true God, it's turning away from sin. Repentance always involves two movements. It is turning away from sin and turning to God. Or you turn to God, and by turning to God, you've turned away from sin. Look at this, Steve. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. They have truly turned to God and broken away from sin. Think about what this means for Israel, friends. Put yourself in their shoes. Some of them have invested heavily into idolatry. Do you remember Gideon's father, Joash? He had his own temple outside. For someone like that at this time, turning away, putting away these idols is no small matter. It's costly. A business goes to ruin. Some of these people were involved in perverse sexual relationships with the Canaanites. Repentance for them meant ending all of that. This is painful. We read some of these words in the Bible and we read verse 16, so they put away all the foreign gods. Put yourself in their shoes. What that would have meant for them? 
Their whole life was for 18 years and before was mashed up in sin. And they have to extricate themselves from this because their hearts have now changed. They are trusting in God. It is costly. When you read Nehemiah, you see the pain that goes in Nehemiah when Nehemiah tells them to get right with God. It's painful. Marriages are split up, for example. It is costly for what has happened in their hearts and minds to become reflected in how they live every day. True repentance always costs us something. When we truly repent, we die to ourselves, and now God becomes first in everything. So those are the two things we've seen. We've seen what repentance is not, and we've seen what repentance is. The final thing this passage shows us is what repentance restores. What repentance restores. A true repentance, what does it bring us? It brings us into a right relationship with God. Look at this 16 again. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And what does he say? And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. They have now returned to God and now God as their father feels their pain. And in the passages next week, we see that God will raise a deliverer, Jephthah. And God will use Jephthah to deliver them from the Ammonites. And if we scan chapter 11 all the way towards verse 32, we read this, Judges 11, verse 32 to 33. It says, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hands, and he struck them from a road to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities, and as far as Adol Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Friends, all true repentance brings us back into a harmonious relationship with God. Without true repentance, we die in our sins. Jesus, our Lord himself, said this, Now I tell you, but unless you repent... Likewise, all of you will perish. Luke 13, verse 3. Now, I want to be clear about one point here. I want to be very clear about one point. This is a very important point. Repentance does not wash away any sins. Repentance does not wash away your sins. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sins. As Jesse Ryle says, our best repentance is a poor, imperfect thing and needs repenting over again. Our most genuine repentance has so many holes in it, Jesse Ryle says, to sink us into hell. You can never repent enough to get yourself into heaven. That's very important to understand. God only accepts our repentance Because Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. And yet, this is important. It is true that without true repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. There will be no one in heaven who has not repented genuinely. So the first question you need to ask yourself this evening is this. Am I truly repentant before God? You know what repentance is and what is it? 
Are you truly repentant? Don't look at the person next to you. Look at yourself. Am I truly repentant? Based on the scriptures. You know that true repentance is putting yourself at the mercy of God in Jesus. Admitting you're a sinner and truly trusting in his serving blood. Have you done this? Are you leaning only on the blood of Jesus to save you from sins? Not your giving, not your church attendance, not your family connection, nothing like that. Are you? You know that true repentance must include definite break from sin, a clear break. We still sin, but there must be change. Have you experienced a clear break from sin? You are not saved if you are not at war with sin in your life. He said that point this morning. Yes, you may cry about your sin. You may be, have been baptized. You may be a member of this church. But you are not converted if you are not at war with sin in your life. You still die in your sin. I am told there are two kinds of heart transplants, operations. I've just been told I'm not an expert, but I'm told there are two kinds of heart transplants. The common one is called the orthotopic heart transplant. I had to pronounce that word, brother, many times just to get it right. It's an orthotopic heart transplant. What happens with that is the old heart from the patient is removed and the new heart is inserted. The other transplant, the other operation is called ectotopic transplant. In this case, what happens is that the surgeon removes the old heart, well, removes, essentially what the surgeon does is the surgeon actually leaves the old heart in, okay? But they connect now a new heart there. Why would the surgeon leave the old heart still there? Does anyone know? For good reason. I mean, think about it. The new one may not be compatible with the body. So you just need to leave it there just in case. So the person, in fact, for a while has a double heart. You know, just in case the new one fails at some point. They can perhaps still rely on the old one just to make things clear. Orthotopic, heterotopic. Some of us here think Jesus performs the second transplant of the old heart and the new heart still together. You think your old heart and the new heart in Jesus go together. And some of you live like that. You, you want Jesus just enough. You just want the new heart just enough in case the old heart, and still the old heart there. You know what I mean? You want both, best of both worlds. But friends, this is not what Dr. Jesus offers. Dr. Jesus only does one transplant. He removes your heart of stone, the dead heart, and gives you a new one that beats with the pulse of his spirit. And this new heart does not tolerate sin. 
It has new affections for God that enables us to be at war with sin. It hates sin, not because it says what sin does to itself to us. It hates sin on God's behalf. So if you find yourself continually tolerating sin, if you are not at war with sin, you need a new orthotopic transplant. What you need is new conversion. And do not delay. Your heart is in serious condition. Come to Jesus today, and if you truly repent from your sin, he will give you a new repentant heart. What about those of us here that have received that transplant from Dr. Jesus? The orthotopic heart transplant. Those of you who have truly surrendered to Jesus. You weep for your sin. You are every day pressing on to the onward call. You see any sin you repented genuinely before Jesus. What about those of us who are like that? Who can truly say we are genuinely converted. What does this passage have to say to us? Well, I think the application for you this evening, first of all, is be thankful. Be thankful for that. Thank God that you have a new nature that hates sin because not everyone does. Thank God that he has given you a new desire by his Holy Spirit to put him first because not everyone is doing it. Not even in this church among those who claim to be converted. Friends, this is not by your effort. It is by his Spirit. So thank him. Don't, don't become too complacent about this issue. It's a wondrous thing to be a war with sin. Not everyone has this. It's an amazing gift from the Lord. So thank him for it. And what is the best way to thank him? How, how do you thank people? I wonder, how do you tend to thank people? Well, Abigail, when she thanks people, she likes to run to them and Give them a hug. You thank people by running to them, isn't it? You give them a hug. You hold them tight. You say, thank you, thank you. Well, I just want to give you that image today that you thank Jesus by running to him and give him a hug every day. How do you do that? His spirit, obviously. How do you do it? Well, by spending time with him. Asking him to fill you with his love for him and and what he has especially done for you on the cross. And you know, friends, as you come running to hug Jesus every day to thank him for all that he has done for you, you begin to grow in true repentance and living for him. You enjoy Christ and you grow to love him. You know, my favorite Puritan, Stephen Shannock, says this, We should see no charms in sin which may not be overcome by that ravishing love which bubbles up in every drop of the Redeemer's blood. Can we, with lively thoughts of this, sin against so much tenderness, compassion, grace, and other perfections of God, which sound so loud in our ears from the cross of Jesus? Shall we consider him hanging there to deliver us from hell and yet return any spirit to walk in the way which leads to hell. 
Can we take any pleasure in that which procured so much pain to our best friend? We can't. We can't. And then he says this, For lack of study of Christ crucified, we walk on in sin. Fix your gaze on Christ crucified and you flee from sin. Now, I always resist going on to quote Shannon because I can go on for a while. The point he makes is clear. As we thank Jesus by meditating on the love on the cross, we grow in true repentance. Well, may God help anyone here who has not truly repented And may God help his true children here to grow in true repentance by keeping Christ crucified at the center of their lives. Amen.